Welcome to the One Nation Podcast. One Nation Party USA is a national political party in service to your freedom, personal capacities, dignity, and stewardship of our land and future. One Nation believes that the time has come to transcend our polarized politics and begin the process of upgrading our systems on behalf of creating a thriving future for all life on Earth. In this first series of episodes on the One Nation podcast, we'll be exploring some key orienting ideas of the party. To do this, we'll be joined in conversation by Christopher Life, one of the initiators of One Nation. Like what you hear? Consider becoming a member of One Nation by going to www.onenation.party or by finding us on Facebook at one Nation Party USA. Disagree with what you hear? Reach out to us and share your perspective. Unlike other political parties, we see disagreement as a doorway to deeper understanding, and we welcome your feedback. You can reach us at participate at onenation.party. Welcome to the One Nation podcast. In this series, we're going to be bringing forward the core ideas and strategies of One Nation and make them publicly available for the first time. In this episode, we're going to attempt to answer the question, what is One Nation? This is where the conversation starts. For this, for this first conversation, I'm pleased to be joined by Christopher Life. Christopher is one of the initiators of One Nation, and he's here with me to begin unpacking some of the central aspects of the vision of One Nation, some of the concepts that underlie the exploration that we've been on together as we've begun this project. So Christopher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. I'm really happy to be here, and this feels like a, a milestone to begin to share this conversation in a public format. Definitely. Yeah. And so I know this is the conversation that you've been having with folks that I've been having with folks that we've been having with folks uh, in a non-recorded way for, for some time now. And so this is, is really a milestone, right? This is not like the first time we've thought of these questions. These are uh, uh, wonderings and inquiries that we've been on, both of us, for a very long time. And so it's I think uh, for me, as I imagine it is for you, a, a great pleasure to to begin to share these in a way that more and more people can sort of take part in the conversation, take part in the inquiry. It feels like now's the time. Yeah. Okay. So let's begin at the beginning. Uh, why did you initiate One Nation? Wow. Well, that's a it's a big question. Um, since as long as I can remember, I've had a passion and a conviction to be in service to life. And as I got a bit older, um, started realizing the actual magnitude and scale of the challenges that are threatening so many aspects of life. Um, started to think a little bit bigger on what's really needed to be able to um, bridge the gap from a world that right now has so many systemic challenges to a world that really works for everyone. And uh, I have a background in 
international security and conflict resolution. That was my program at SDSU. And shortly thereafter, I founded an international nonprofit organization that did uh, small-scale rural community development programs in East Africa. So I got a real deep initiation into extreme poverty, which is at the time what I thought was the primary challenge um, for our, our, our planet and our species was extreme poverty. You know, these, these mm. two billion members of our human family that were suffering deeply on a daily basis. <clears throat> And after doing that work for several years and starting to, as I got a little bit older, better understand some of the geopolitical drivers um, that actually create those conditions of extreme poverty. Mm. Right? I, was, I was under the impression when I was younger that somehow they were, these were just the countries that like hadn't developed yet. Um, they were just kind of a little bit late to the party of, of development. Um, but then I actually realized that there were systematic uh, drivers that were um, creating these impoverished conditions, mostly for greed and profit's sake. Mm. And <clears throat> came to realize that, um, kind of like the whack-a-mole game, that you can't really create a meaningful impact on extreme poverty by addressing extreme poverty. You have to address the generator functions or the systemic drivers that create that. And that led to a like a 10-year inquiry of really asking the question of what impact can we actually make? You know, are these drivers, um, these institutionalized aspects of corruption or inefficiency or whatever you want to call it, um, are they penetrable? Or are we just uh, mm. at the whim of the people that pull the puppet strings in this world um, and we just have to kind of like get used to it and the world is always going to be full of subjugation. It's always going to push people down and push some people down and push other people up. And as a result of that inquiry, you know, I started having visions and I don't mean visions in like um, a spiritual sense, but just, just thoughts and daydreams and ideations and reflections and started to really look at what's possible here mm -hmm. with us actually engaging in this system. And to cut a long story short, um, through the process of that inquiry and looking at the fact that we currently have democratic institutions, meaning that despite corruption or systemic in, uh, inefficiencies, we, we, we still actually can create impact through votes. We can actually decide who our mayor is. We can actually make a number of votes to pass a referendum. Now, that referendum itself, as it was proposed, might be full of a whole bunch of stuff that we might not be very excited about. There might not be any good policies that we're fully aligned with are actually in service to the regeneration of human vitality, ecological vitality. But nonetheless, the context is there for us to be able to engage. Hmm. And all of that has led to the realization that if we really do organize, that there's a profound impact that we can make in the existing system to impact how government works, to impact the economic conditions that government either um, incentivizes uh, or uh, disallows. Hmm. And all of those have huge impacts in how the 
a geopolitical fabric works. And those are some of the reasons that led to the realization that it was time for us to organize in a way that wasn't trying to fit in to one of the existing party platforms, but actually to create our own context. Because a political party in of itself is, is an organization with the intention of being able to influence government. And I think that a lot of people have chosen to influence government through some of these existing party platforms. Um, but in the very process of attempting to do that, their, their, their truth, their authentic, their authentic desire to influence is actually somehow molded or corrupted by those platforms. So it's like, well, if I want to influence government, I've got to imply to one of these platforms and the voter base, those platforms and the voting behaviors of those platforms. And then that's my only way to be able to get into office. And it's time to have a completely new conversation yes. and say, what do we, what does government need right now in order for us to address the issues that are most negatively impacting the world and or the things that could most positively impact the world that aren't currently priorities right. and transcend the existing narrative and paradigm by going into political business for ourselves, if you will. Yeah. Great. And, and to kind of put a personal spin on it or speaking personally, you know, I had my kind of political awakening when I was organizing with Occupy Wall Street in New York City. And, you know, uh, more than anything else, that experience was a kind of educational and transformational journey for those who really dove in deep and drank from the well of what that experience was. And coming out the other side of that experience the one thing I knew to be certain was the way in which the problems we see in the world are interconnected, right? It's not like you can just sort of like resolve poverty or resolve homelessness and hope that you're going to do what is necessary in order to create a more beautiful future for all of life, right? And, and I think it, it maybe was at one point the case, maybe before I was born, that we didn't have such pressing issues that demanded us to get ourselves together in a way that actually could meet the demands of our time, right? Like we are not, you know, it's not just that our system isn't doing a very good job. It's that it's fundamentally failing to meet the challenges of our era so flagrantly that it's like, almost an opportunity, right? It's almost an opportunity. And that's what I personally really appreciate about the kind of audaciousness of, of this project. And just like I appreciated it about Occupy Wall Street is it's like, hold on a second, like let's take a step back and actually like, let's, let's see like what, how much power do we actually have? And what could we do like very differently in order to create a world that actually works for people and isn't just like, I mean, we could talk for days about how deeply flawed things are and how problematic things have become and the reasons why, but still there's this kind of recapturing of our like, hey, like we can actually change the world, right? And as you say, like we still have the right to vote. And so, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you bringing forward this kind of core piece of, you know, it's not enough to iteratively change the system. We're going to be playing whack-a-mole while the world burns around us. 
And so instead, you know, there's this opportunity, this invitation. And I think that you see this, I saw this quite clearly through my study that like, oh, okay, actually there needs to be some kind of like more fundamental systems change. In a lot of ways, the political sector is, is the meta or overarching context. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a context that informs how economics works. It's a context that has huge um, implications on how we do or don't relate to the environment. Uh, it's a context that informs a lot about how our society works and our social interactions and transportation and energy and all these things. They actually all back in to government. Now, I'm not saying this um, naive to the fact that the economic drivers kind of have a superior leverage on government right now because you can actually use government. You can use money to change government. And so in that, it's that economic model that's kind of meta from the standpoint of its, of its current impact. I'm not living in the delusion that says, oh yeah, like the government's in charge of everything. No, it's like corporations and very wealthy people are actually in charge of everything right now. And yet government as a, as a concept, as a principle, is a framework that that holds the possibility of helping to put these different aspects of society into right relationship. Mm. And so you, you can't have a conversation around full systems change that requires all of these sectors to be able to change together without having that to a very deep degree be coming from and through that governmental membrane Right. that we experience in our world, whether it's the level of city, the state, the nations, or international alliances. And uh, one nation is a commitment to, to engage and even penetrate that existing government system to meet the other change makers, right? The, 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 there's a larger social movement. Um, I don't think that it's been formally given a name. Um, it makes me think about the sustainability movement, but it's like the 2.0. Mm-hmm. version of the sustainability movement, right? If you go back 10 or 15 years, the term sustainability wasn't even a thing. There mm-hmm. wasn't really that many people worried or wondering if we were going to be fine ecologically. It wasn't even a, a topic. And then the sustainability movement came through and said, hey, you know, we actually, we might not be sustainable. And we need to really think about our policies and our economic conditions. And there's a range of people that bought into that conversation to various degrees. But I was, um, I was at a presentation with a gentleman whose name just slipped my mind, who was speaking and a very credible thought leader. And this was in 2008. Mm. And he talked about sustainability. He's like, this is so inadequate. It's Mm. like, if, if my wife asked me how our marriage is doing and I answered said, it's sustainable, you know, what would she say? Mm -hmm. And that just for things to be able to sustain is completely inadequate. We deserve thriving. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, you know, you call it the, the inherent flaws, the inadequacies of the system. It's not even sustainable, let alone. Right directed towards creating a thriving reality for, for all humans and all life. So we got to pull it up, you know, 
to sustainable, but we can't even stop there. We have to pull it all the way through to something that we call thriving. And a lot of people use the term regenerative because our, our human health has become compromised on so many levels from diet related diseases to toxins, to uh, the pervasive um, cancers and uh, you know, polluted water, polluted air. I mean, the list goes on and on on how our, our physical biology is compromised. And, uh, and then you've got the nervous system, just this con- chronic stress and everybody's sitting underneath fluorescent lights for 10 hours a day and not getting exercise. And the list goes on and on and on on why the, the human itself is mm-hmm. compromised. And then you look at our ecology and it's deeply compromised. And I mean, I, I, could, I could be brought to tears very easily talking about the oceans, the fish, the coral reefs, the rainforests, the increased CO2 levels, the, the list and plethora, the extinction rates, you know, almost one of the most heartbreaking thing is a, is a species just leaving the biosphere forever. Right. And so clearly we don't want to sustain compromised sick humans and an incredibly compromised ecology. It's time to regenerate it. And through my social networks and through the things that I like to follow and read, I'm so heartened by seeing how many people in the world are committed to this movement of regeneration. You know, I'm, I'm just, even this moment, I'm, I'm almost brought to tears. Um, everywhere you look, there's, there's a person or organization committed to the regeneration of our soils, the regeneration of our atmosphere, the regeneration of our psychological health, the regeneration of our biological health, the regeneration of our societies, the regeneration of our, of our, of our, of, our, of the health of our families. Mm-hmm. And the list goes on and on and on. And if you, if, if you watch, you'll find these leaders that are, that aren't just egoically trying to get a message across. They're not just trying to sell their, their next book. They're not just trying to lead an organization. These are people that really care about regenerating life on earth. Mm-hmm. And so this movement, I don't know how many millions of people, but it's a movement that's happening. It's around the world. And those that are having this level of commitment, this all-in commitment for all of life, are beginning to find each other. And <clears throat> I'm a stand for this. You know, I'm a stand for this concept that's so lofty that says, if we put a full court press on regeneration, we could actually fundamentally create a new era for humanity. Yeah. Where we integrate all the lessons learned from the industrial era, all the lessons learned as we traversed from a tribal context in these things called civilizations, you integrate all of that and actually rebirth humanity into a new era. I don't think that that is um, a pie in the sky thing to say. I think we actually are sitting on top of that possibility. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes, what's, what's our act of leadership as we move through this rebirthing canal? <clears throat> so that's where one nation enters into the field of larger social movement that is existing without one nation mm-hmm. that is 
speaking truths and, and trying to shift paradigms around every nook and cranny of how our world works. And yet, it's disheartening to see how little some of these initiatives make in isolation. How little some of these initiatives make when they're not in a synergistic context that allows the whole system to transform and rebirth together. How little some of these initiatives make, they don't actually have a political foundation. And so one nation is, is trying to meet, is standing up to meet this existing movement that's happening in this world to be able to ground some of these regenerative technologies and processes and best practices and paradigms into actual policy of how our cities work, how our states mm -hmm. work, how our governments work, mm -hmm. actually putting governmental size budgets behind these critical initiatives to support our psychological healing, overcoming addiction, regenerating our ecologies, um, helping people actually improve their sense of value and worth mm -hmm. as the, as a mechanism to overcome the suicide rates. I mean, we have like very powerful leaders in this regenerative movement mm -hmm. and one nation stands to be a platform for those leaders and those movements and the, those sub movements and those different organizations to be able to have the platform they need to, to, to meet their, their peers and their colleagues working in different sectors in order to bring those elements, those, those different sub movements of that regenerative movement together mm -hmm. and then also to ground it in the very fabric of, of our government. And so one nation stands to be that type of platform that, that doesn't yet exist in America. Um, there's other, there's other new organizations that are being created in different countries around the world, as I know that, you know, yep. um, but yep. we, we want to create that home for those leaders and those citizens and those activists that are, that are, that, that, that know that it's not working as it is that know that sustainability is completely inadequate and that are committed to creating an actual thriving future for, for America, for humanity and for all life on earth. And that's what one nation is a political platform for. Right on. Yeah. And I remember in, you know, back in Occupy, as it kind of started to dissolve, a lot of folks went and tried to participate in the Democratic Party, right? That's where they turned to after Occupy started to fall apart. And there was an, it was a useful experiment, right? But I think it proved what you said at the beginning of this conversation, that once you start to move into these systems that currently exist, it starts to it starts to uh, uh, change you and it starts to change what you're able to do. It starts to put limits on what's even possible so that the beauty of intention of Occupy becomes, uh, we want like a higher minimum wage, right? And I think what I really appreciate about One Nation is that it seems to be quite open-eyed about the mag magnitude of the challenges facing us and it's not willing to settle for some kind of like lower order solution. Right. And so I think it's also the case, as you said, that there's like 
there is this distributed movement, whether we call it whatever we want to call it. There is a movement of humanity that is being birthed on this planet right now that you and I know about, that anybody who pays attention, and it's likely that if you're listening to this podcast, this first version of this What is One Nation podcast, it's likely that you are a part of or know about this movement, right? It's like, it's available for those who care, thanks to the internet, you know, to just like, you search for what, you know, if you, if you relate to these information sources long enough, you see, oh my God, there's this entire world of people dedicating themselves to a more beautiful future. And it's like, and then you get to the, then you get to the, uh, you know, to, to vote, which we're, you know, I'm, I'm planning on doing in, in a couple of weeks here in America. And it's like, okay, who's the lesser of two evils? Nobody represents my heart's desire for how I want to see change happen on this planet and how I actually know that it's possible because I've been exposed to these incredible people, these incredible organizations. I've read these incredible books and I'm completely convinced and persuaded that we could have a radically better future, a radically better planet for everybody. If we actually got our heads out of our butts and started to, to coordinate in a more sophisticated way. And so what I really appreciate about one nation and it's why I've dedicated my time to it is that like we're, we're willing to engage with those systems by which human beings coordinate. And so I, I think it would be fun now to talk a little bit about like, uh, why, why is it significant that this is a political party? Like, you know, uh, I can imagine somebody listening to what you're saying so far and be like, well, why don't you just do something like the Tea Party? Why don't you just like, or even like Occupy, like just start a movement or, you know, uh, try to create some, I don't know, a new nonprofit or a new, I, you know, all the, all the litany of things you might start instead of a political party. Like why, why, why a political party? Yeah, that is a very important question. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing everything you said before. And um, just for those that are listening, there's a, there's something I want to mention relative to your last point around the, um, you saw, you said that a lot of people from Occupy end up looking to the Democratic Party for um, maybe a potential vehicle or a channel to, to keep that driving forward. And um, my guess is we've got listeners or viewers that, um, that probably come from across that existing ideological spectrum. You know, we kind of have put the, the libertarians on the far right and the Republicans and the Democrats and the Green Party on the far mm-hmm. left. And we kind of like plot them all in this two-dimensional divide. And what I just want to communicate very clearly is that there's important aspects of principles that are actually held within every bucket along that spectrum. And um, I think there's a lot of people that have been associated themselves as, as, as progressive and then uh, because the Democratic platform uses the term progressive, just kind of assume and associate their affiliation with, with something that's over there. Um, but how often do you hear somebody say something like, oh, I'm kind of more like a conservative, fiscal conservative, but social liberal, something kind of like that, right? So that, that concept itself immediately breaks down the inadequacy of that continuum to actually hold cohesive political ideology. It's really loose. Yeah. And so I just want to make that extremely clear that one nation is a stand for the best elements 
of those four platforms, finding relationship with each other is completely in it. And, um, and, and being able to integrate into a whole new possibility. Mm-hmm. So I just want to, I just want to make that very clear because, um, some people might that, that, that come from this historical right might quickly write off that maybe this is something that would appeal to them because of the word progressive or, or your mention of the democratic party. Um, but one nation is as committed to the, the, some of the beautiful principles that the Republican party stands for. Um, and we're excited to be able to reveal to the world how these core parts aren't as mutually exclusive as we might have previously been led to believe. Right. So. Well, and, and I think that's a core piece. I just want to name that that's a core piece of, I think, what we're offering is that these this polarity that our country is currently locked into in a battle to the death is itself a fabrication, right? It's a made it's a fabric- up. Fabrication. It's made up. It's Completely. made up. And, 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 you know, I would argue personally, you know, maybe this isn't the perspective of one nation, but that there are interested parties who keep us locked in this polarized battle in order to maintain their power. Right. And so by stepping out of that false dichotomy, all of a sudden we, the people have an opportunity to consolidate our power in a new way that can actually lead to decisions that everybody likes, or maybe everybody except for those who kind of are the puppet masters, you know, who keep this system, this false polarity in play. And so that's what's on offer, I think, that you're pointing to. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and, and for us to be a ferocious stand, to not fall victim to somebody else's engineered way for us to think about things and each other mm-hmm. right there was a um uh, a report that just came out that that i know that you saw um that great report credible source and showed that the narrative is uh really defined by extreme voices on both sides of this of this um engineered political ideological frame and it's about 6% of Americans on one side and about 8% of Americans on the other side. So about 14% of Americans, according to this report, are aligned with the, 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 the dominating narrative that all the rest of us are susceptible to because of what's coming across the news and the TV. And it's the only narrative that is actually available, really. And this report actually said that, too. It said that there's just no other narrative. So you have this thing called a liberal narrative. And so it gives people something to galvanize around. You have this thing called a conservative narrative. It gives people this thing to to, to galvanize around. And the biggest challenge we have right now is there's just not another narrative. So people either have nothing to say or they have to kind of like pick one of those two very polarized narratives that they think best aligns with their personal values, their spiritual values, their social values. So one nation has the opportunity and we all do as, as a larger movement, but I think One Nation has the opportunity to ground this is actually to bring a new narrative into mm-hmm. the public eye that allows this 84% of other people, which I'm not even going to say that they're in the middle. To say that they're in the middle, that's actually giving power to this divide, right? This is, there's people all over the place. They're here and 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 they're, they're, not, they're not sitting nicely on a line of ideology. So you have these poles on this line 
And then you have people plotted every which way. And that's 84% of America. And I think that, and I believe, and I'm, and I'm committed to seeing for, through what the regenerative narrative, this narrative of creating a world that works forever, this, this narrative of, 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 of overcoming this, this addiction to divisiveness and actually being a stand for win-win policy, mm. win-win solutions, win-win outcomes. Is it possible that we could um, attract more than 14% of America with that narrative? I don't even think that's, that's a completely rhetorical question. I think there's no question. I think it's just going to, is it going to be 30 or 40 or 50 or 60% of America? And we're talking about hundreds of millions of people right now. So yeah, we could, we could just keep going on that. But I, I think the, the purpose of this, of this initial episode is just to sprinkle. And um, yeah. for those listening, we have um, a handful of fundamental uh, episodes kind of outlined that will, that will actually zoom in to any of these different topics that we're just revealing the heads of. Yeah. And you asked this other question. I don't know if you want to get me into it now about why a political party. Do you want to go there? Or do you want to take this conversation somewhere else? I don't know if there's an answer you want to, like a quick answer you want to give, because I'm sure people yeah. listening will have yeah. that question. Like, why are you doing such a thing? Yeah, let's double click on that just for a second, right? So <clears throat> let's get really practical. A political party has a tax-exempt status to be able to participate in electoral activities, meaning that they can raise money, they don't have to pay tax on it, and they can use that money to participate in electoral activities and go through certain processes to be able to be recognized on a state-by-state -state basis as a major political party and therefore have ballot access. Mm. So if we don't play that game, that means we will forever be beholden to those who have. We will forever have to compromise and contort our values and our message and our truth and our power to those organizations who simply have gone through those hoops. So, so why, when it's actually relatively simple in the grand scheme of things, to create our own ballot access so we, we can not have to fight within that existing system, which, as I think you know and most of our listeners know, are essentially driven by profit-based corporate interests at the roots. A lot of the stuff on the surface is kind of just like the icing that's like the sugar that makes the medicine go down. Mm -hmm. um, the right and the left, as we call them, are deeply entrenched, equally entrenched in corporate interests. And the right appeals socially through religion and through family values, and the left appeals socially through alternative lifestyle and appealing to other social issues. But below that, the drivers of them is entrenched corporate issues looking to be able to maximize profits at the expense of society and the planet, mm. period. Right, right. And I think, I think, you know, there may be some people listening that believe that, okay, well, we can just build some alternative over here and not really worry about fiddling with the levers of power, in this case, political parties. But I think, you know, there might be some hypothetical future in which that's the case, but look the, at the degree to which our world is currently dominated by Trump. Forget how you feel about him, but like, I feel like 
I'm constantly being exposed to storylines about him, right? That like I live in a world that's dominated by this story of this person and his like, you know, uh, what, whatever he's up to. I can't help but experience it to a certain degree. And that's true for every American, right? And so one thing that I think One Nation is inviting is a realignment of like what actually matters now. Right, like what really matters now at this time in this age of transition, right? And so, future episodes will be making arguments about like where are we in the arc of history? And you know, I think the more you look into that question, the more that the narrative of the two parties just seems so ridiculous, so silly, so missing the point, right? That it's 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 almost inviting a new a new paradigm, a new way of seeing like, what is politics? What can we do together? And what do we like need to do together? Or we're not going to have a world to hand to our grandkids even, you know, it's like really. To your point, it's like these narratives are becoming so ridiculous that they're actually like, like, uh, uh, what's the word? Like, like teasing this out of us. Totally. Yeah. They're like prodding us along. Like, we're going to see how ridiculous, how long we can get away with this ridiculous stuff until you finally, you know, get with the program to offer something better. And take responsibility for our world. Oh, totally. Yeah. And when you say, like, what are some of the things that matter most to us now? We don't have time in this episode to, to drill into specific categorical things. So, this, so to say general, I'll make a very, very specific general point. One of the things that matters to us right now is taking government extremely seriously. And so <clears throat> I think there's a lot of people that have become disenfranchised with politics for good reason, disenfranchised with government for good reason. A lot of these people have maybe put decades into working in these systems and come to a conclusion that there's no good that they can make within those systems. And others might have never touched those systems and they've been alienated since they were a teenager. And they said, I'll never be a part of this thing. And, and now they're creating a, some community on, on blockchain, some, some additional, some new, new currency, um, some mode of organizing. Or, or some people have just like totally pulled themselves out of the system and they've got some off-grid community where they've got solar power and a well. But all of these people are a moment away from realizing that if somebody is threatened by what they're doing and doesn't like that, you can grab them, throw them in jail, lock them up. Our rights for fair trials are being deeply jeopardized. There's a lot of loopholes whereby if those in power really want us to be locked up, they just, they can, they can pull those levers. So this off-grid community is still in the jurisdiction of a government whether they like to think it is or not. This, this, this person who's like thriving in a community on blockchain, they're still driving on a road that's managed by the government, right? They're still, they're still actually gonna have to pay sales tax and income tax and all these things. So I'm not saying we can't actually evolve beyond being um, subjects of a government because I actually believe that we, we have that possibility as, as, we, as, we, as we rebirth humanity. But in this moment, in this current reality, things like atomic warheads are real. Things like nuclear power plants are real. Things like militarized police are real. Things like government budgets are real. Things like tax, tax law is real. So you're an ostrich with your head in the sand 
if you're not fully realizing how real government is and how needed our leadership is there and now. You know, it reminds me of that scene at the end of The Matrix. I don't know if, if you or any listeners have seen, but you have Neo, the main character, who's running away from Agent Smith, running away from these agents. Um, him and his and his, his his squad have a belief that that the agents are unbeatable. So all they can do is, is run from them. And at the very end of the movie, Neo just has this awakening, this epiphany. And he realizes, wait a second. Maybe even though the fact that all the other squads that initiated me into this world told me that the agents were unbeatable, maybe that's not true. Maybe everybody was living some form of an illusion that they were recreating by reinforcing that. And he stops, he turns to Agent Smith, he faces him head on, and everything things starts to change when he does that. His reality starts to change. Agent Smith becomes more accessible to him. He has no problem actually interacting with it. And then he chooses to actually dive because they're in a computer program. So you can do this type of stuff in a computer program, <laughs> dive straight into the center of this agent and splinter him into light from the inside out. Hmm. And that metaphor holds the energy and the visual that I would love for everybody who cares about this world and our brothers and sisters, or the humankind around the world, the animal kingdoms, the plant kingdoms, this possibility of life sustained on earth. Everybody who cares about life needs to really think about what it looks like for us to turn back to face government, to shed the aloof nature, to shed the aversion, to shed the cynicism, to shed the limiting beliefs, to shed the I've seen this before, to shed the I've tried this before, to shed all of that and organize and mobilize and fully leverage the democratic process and power that we have available to ourselves to become the government, to lead this world, and to choose how the government plays a generative role <laughs> in the creating of a new era of humanity. Nice. Yeah. And so that invitation that you just made will continue to explore on this show, you know, from a number of different angles. And I think I would be remiss, we would be remiss if we didn't at least spend a little bit of time now asking the question that I have gotten all the time as I've told people what I've been working on, which is, you know, what, and, and we're not going to be able to do this full justice um, in this, in this shorter episode, but uh, what, what are the policies of one nation? Like what are, what are you gonna, what, what kind of like new laws are you gonna pass once you get into office, right? Because the other parties, they have policies that I, I, I know that I'm kind of voting for. And, and so what, what, are, what about you, One Nation? What are your policies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a very important question, right? And I'm laughing, right? Because you say these other platforms have policies. They kind of do, but they mostly have what we call campaign promises more than policies. Mm -hmm. 
So they have campaign promises as a carrot to get the vote, and then they do kind of whatever they want to do. It's full impunity or no accountability. So it's, 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 uh, it's not even granted and true that these other platforms have these crystal clear policies, mm-hmm. platforms. And, and obviously sometimes various policies come forward, but, um, but it's more about campaign promises than policies, to be honest. And <clears throat> when we talk about policies, um, you know, we're, we're talking about the laws that govern the land. Um, and what's, 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 uh, tolerable, what's not tolerable, what, uh, receives allocation of budgets and programs. And, and I've come to the conclusion that there's actually no short answer to this question. That's, 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 that's a good answer. I think that what happens when people get asked this question is if they're running on the Republican platform, then they put the Republican hat on. And they say, uh, what are this voting constituent wanting to hear? What are the buzzwords they're looking for? They say those buzzwords, and then they feel like they check the box. And that happens on both sides. It's an ideological divide. A short answer to that question of what's our policy platform is actually fundamentally inadequate to meet the needs that we have. What, what we need to do as a party and as a movement, as a society, is do something that hasn't actually been done before, which is bring stakeholders together. Mm-hmm. Like actually, I'm not talking about the, the stakeholders of the different companies. I'm talking about the actual stakeholders that represent all the different parties. And when I say parties, I mean all the different groups that are impacted by any particular thing and dialogue mm-hmm. and listen to each other deeply. And find out what matters most to you over here. Okay, okay. Can you, if if this matters most to you, can you let go of this and this? Okay, great. What matters most to you over here? Okay, if if this matters most to you, can you let go of this and this? And we start to distill the fundamental values that people hold. And then we say, great, now let's get creative. Mm -hmm. Let's figure out how you can be a stand for family, traditional family values. And... Mm -hmm. Somebody else can be able to make a decision around their own uh, choice to become a parent. And that we can actually weave that together in a way that's not fundamentally mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And the list goes on and on. But what you're going to find out as, as we go deeper into the conversation around the One Nation policy platform is we look at these four buckets Yellow, libertarian, red, Republican, blue, Democrat, and green, the Green Party platform. And kind of if you think about like the wild card on Uno, you know, it's like got like the four colors on it, if you know what I mean. So think about every policy platform, every policy decision, fundamentally integrating this of, of, of the traditional libertarian thinking on the topic, the best of the Republican thinking on the topic, the best of the democratic platform, social base thinking on the topic and the best of the green party topic on the thinking on the topic and watch what happens when we like Thomas Edison that says, I don't, it's not if the light bulb, it's just how 
Mm-hmm. And the Wright brothers say, it's not if the airplane, it's just how. We're saying with the same level of commitment, it's not if we can find alignment at a policy level that can actually be a win-win. It's just how. Just how much do we care to be able to get out of policy creation that, as we all know, for the most part, is actually benefiting corporate interests more than anything else, which has to be the case because that's the fundamental driver of of the existing political system. Mm -hmm. Inside of the One Nation platform, we're not beholden to profit-centric corporate interests, which allows us to do a deeper rigor of thinking and a transparency and a revealing to all these different constituents what things were taken into consideration and why these conclusions have been come to. And so that's just what I want to say to start the conversation, to get us to start to think about a type of policy discourse that's fundamentally integrative in nature, that, 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 that the synthesis is what we're driving towards. It's kind of like when, uh, when maybe a, a married husband and wife, they're getting an argument and they see things from one perspective and, and she sees things from another perspective and they're certain that, that they're right and the other person is so wrong. And as long as they keep going at it like this, they just keep reinforcing that point. Yeah. But finally they get like exhausted and they'd like sit down and they stop fighting and they look up at the clouds passing by and they listen to each other for the first time. Mm. And they realize they actually were, weren't even saying what the other person thought they were saying. And that they can both have what they want and they can actually create a win-win solution once they just stop fighting and start loving each other. It's like, that happens. And this whole thing that's happening in America from a political discourse is just a bunch of people arguing with each other that haven't actually taken that. And, and because there's so much fear, right? I, I'm not making any of it wrong. Like, I understand why it's been this way. And we can lead and model a new way that feels more like that husband and wife after they stop fighting, put their arm around each other and said, Hey, we're, we're one family. So Mm. let's just actually, let's figure this one out together. And then boom, it's, it's, it's not that complicated. It's just the energy that it's being come from. So as America, we are one family. We're one nation. You know, so if, if we think from the consciousness of, I'm Republican, I'm conservative, you're Democrat, you're liberal, then that comp is fundamentally going to disallow the creativity needed to actually get the job done. Mm -hmm. But if our identity premise is that we are one nation, it, it unlocks a completely new come from in how we think about policy. Nice. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody's ready for this conversation. There's, like I said, 6% of America that are entrenched on one side and 8% that are entrenched on the other side, and they're not willing to go beyond that. But what about that 84%? Is some, some meaningful number of those other millions of Americans ready for a new way that we relate to a political conversation? And I'm getting resounding reflections and reactions from people that yes, 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 there's a readiness for that. Yes. And One Nation is helping to host that conversation. Nice. 
Yeah. And, and perhaps it is the case that you listener, you too are exhausted like the husband and wife with the current state of political discourse. And so if you are, you know, I and we invite you to continue to listen and furthermore participate in this conversation. You know, what, what should be very clearly stated is that we don't really know, we don't have all the answers. This is the beginning, not just of the conversation between Christopher and I, but of a much larger conversation about how we as people, as individuals, and as a collective can start to take responsibility for the future of this planet and for the future of this nation and for the future of our communities. And so we invite you along this journey as we continue to explore some of these underlying concepts, these ideas that we've been exploring, that we've been researching out of care, out of a desire to create a better future. And so, you know, this is us sharing our journey with you. And we hope that you'll share your journey of inquiry and discovery and even cr and, and critical feedback too with us so that we learn and, and, and uh, you know, what's the word like? Uh, eat our own dog food, create new win-win decisions out of the critical feedback that you're offering to us. Because we truly do believe, speaking, I know I believe that I will be better off if you tell me, if you show me where I'm blind, right? And that will be, that's true for me, that's true for us. And I hope that will be true for our country in the future. And so um, with that, I think we can bring this first conversation to a close. Christopher, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience? You know, I think that just in this first episode, um, I want to speak, yeah, I want to speak to one other, one other element that I feel belongs here, which is the systematic subjugation that's occurred in this country. And um, so many Americans that haven't actually had a platform that represents them. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is in that very article, that research article that I, that I referred to earlier, they identified that not only is this 6% on this side and 8% on this side that actually control the narrative, but from a, demo, from a, from a um, demographic standpoint, they're rich and white on both sides. So in that regard, they're actually, they're, there's a, there's a, a homogenization mm. uh, of those that are controlling the narrative. So we see that that our amazing black African community isn't represented driving that national narrative. Our amazing Native American community isn't represented in driving that narrative. Our, our amazing Hispanic and Latino brothers and sisters from that, that live in America or that have, that have migrated to America in their life or, you know, through the course of multiple generations, they're not totally represented there. And, and beyond that, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain held in these communities, which, which you and I are not one of. I want to name that clearly. I'm, and that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with, with, with my Caucasian lineage. Um, but one of the things that I'm most proud of and most excited about with One Nation is being able to create a platform that can help those voices and those communities and those worldviews and those spiritual perspectives that live in these different communities, our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters here in America, and the list goes on, to be able to be heard, to be able to be respected, 
and to be collaborators in creating a new narrative and to be able to acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the way that there have been systemic drivers that have subjugated Native Americans, that have put down Black Africans, that have kept Hispanic communities in a current condition. And we're not actually here to criticize the past. We're just here to say, we feel the pain, we see the pain, we want to acknowledge the pain, we want to apologize to you for this pain and this lineage of pain. You know, there, there's a reference in Native American history of the Trail of Tears. And to pull it out of that specific reference, was, which, was a, which was a very specific historical moment in time, there's a trail of tears, mm -hmm. deep, a trail of tears, a trail of blood, a trail of pain throughout the various communities here in America. And one nation is a call for us to start to come together as one nation, despite how painful the past has been, to let the past be the past and to step across a threshold together with mutual respect, mutual care, and realize that regardless of what got us here, we're here. And we have the chance, we have the choice to either tarry in the past or to move forward as one nation. And in order to be able to do that, we've got to acknowledge at least the past hmm. publicly, powerfully. And then from that place, move forward as one nation. And so that's, that's the final thing that I want to mention is just how, how passionate we are of integrating the perspectives of this historic ideological divide. And I say historic because it's done. It's, it's, in, it's in our past. This whole like libertarians over here, Republicans over here, Democrats over here, it's done, okay? So we wanna transcend and integrate the best of this historical ideological divide. And in the same way, we wanna integrate the leaders of these different communities, the voices, the perspectives, that are integral, that are critical, that are required to be bringing their leadership forward as we discover how to move forward as one nation. Thank you, Christopher. All right. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the One Nation podcast. The One Nation Party is made possible by your support. If you enjoyed this conversation, we invite you to explore membership and volunteer participation in the party by heading to www.onenation.party. That's www.onenation.party.